to the responsibility to protect. Words kill. All societies are potentially vulnerable. crimes. Timely and appropriate action. Welcome to Expert Voices on Atrocity Prevention by the Global Center for the Responsibility to Protect. I'm Jacqueline Streitfeld-Hall, Research Director at the Global Center. This podcast features one-on-one conversations with practitioners from the fields of human rights, conflict prevention, and atrocity prevention. These conversations will give us a glimpse of the personal and professional side of how practitioners approach human rights protection and atrocity prevention, allowing us to explore challenges, identify best practices, and share lessons learned on how we can protect populations more effectively. Today we are joined by Ezekiel Hefes. Ezekiel is a senior policy and legal advisor at Geneva Call, a humanitarian NGO that promotes respect of humanitarian norms by armed non-state actors. He holds an LLM in IHL and human rights from the Geneva Academy and a law degree from the University of Buenos Aires School of Law. Ezekiel is currently finishing his PhD at the University of Leiden. Prior to joining Geneva Call, he worked for the ICRC in Colombia, Afghanistan, and the Democratic Republic of the Congo. He has widely published on different international law issues, including authoring the book, Detention by Non-State Armed Groups Under International Law, and co-editing International Humanitarian Law and Non-State Actors, Debates, Law, and Practice. Thank you for joining us today, Ezekiel. Thank you very much for having me. Um, Before we get started on your story, I'm wondering if you could inform our listeners on what exactly international humanitarian law or IHL is. Um, So international humanitarian law is a set of rules um, that seek for humanitarian purposes to limit the effects of armed conflicts on, on individuals. So it does so by protecting people who are not or who are no longer participating in the conflict and it restricts i would say the the prerogatives of the parties to the conflict i'm speaking about states and non-state armed groups or armed non-state actors as we use it at geneva code so it puts a limit to what they can do or they cannot do in in armed conflict and uh, the the main treaties that, uh, that are form actually the international humanitarian law are the Geneva Conventions of 1949. There are uh, three additional protocols, uh, two of them that were adopted in 1977 and one that was adopted in 2005. And then there are also a number of uh, rules that are considered to be customary in nature. So that means that the practice, the repeated practice of states and, and their beliefs that these rules are mandatory have confirmed that these rules are customary in nature. And these uh, rules, they are applicable in, in, there are two types of conflicts in which some of the rules, some of these rules apply. Uh, One type of conflict is international armed conflicts that are those conflicts between uh, two or more states and non-international armed conflicts that are those conflicts between a state and an armed non-state actor, or between uh, two or more armed non-state actors uh, themselves. And what initially drew you to working in this field? So I, I have always, well, I'm, I'm a lawyer, as uh, you read in, in my bio, I'm a lawyer. I've studied law um, at the University of Buenos Aires in Argentina. And I have always been quite of a, a fan of, of the law and what uh, the law can achieve in, in societies. I believe that the law is a tool to protect individuals. And I think armed conflicts are 
uh, one of those situations in which, in which individuals need to be protected the most because um, sometimes, well, because of course of, of the presence of violence, uh, because services are no longer present, so individuals don't have access to healthcare, they don't have access to education, they don't have access to food. They are sometimes under the control of uh, entities that are not the state. Uh, sometimes they are under the control of uh, a foreign state. So they are taken out of their normal environment. And uh, I believe these are situations, as I said, in which individuals need to be protected the most. And I think the law provides certain uh, tools in that regard. So I mentioned before uh, the Geneva Conventions, uh, the additional protocols and, and customary international humanitarian law that exist alongside international human rights law that is the, the, the framework, the legal framework that applies both in times of peace and in times of war, that also protect, protects individuals. So for me, it, it was a matter of um, conceiving uh, the tools at hand. So I would say in this case, international humanitarian law, the law of armed conflict, international human rights law, uh, as, as protective elements. Uh, and and uh, because of my, my background in law, this was one of the reasons why I actually, I, I ended up working in, in various conflict areas and with uh, various armed actors. So that's, that brings me to my next question, which is actually that, you know, once you have a law degree, you can obviously go in, in many different directions with it. And you ended up um, taking positions where you went into the field. And so I'm wondering um, what sort of positions you worked at at ICRC entailed. Thank you very much. So um, it's interesting because one of my first experiences uh, was in Argentina. My, I would say my, one of my first official jobs was working for the National Security Ministry in Argentina that was created in 2010 and uh, had an office that was... Uh, formed by civilians, so by people who were not members of the internal security forces of Argentina, and we would have to deal with the internal security forces of Argentina with respect to their behaviors, their activities, and, and how they would, I would say, they would uh, conduct their uh, law enforcement operations. And uh, this was actually a, a great experience because allow me to be in touch, allow me to be in touch with internal security forces, so the internal federal police, the, the border police, um, is an experience that I, I, I didn't have, I hadn't had before. And afterwards, I, I went to Geneva to pursue my LLM at the Geneva Academy, and I, I realized it's, it's, it's this interesting feeling in which um, you study with, and, and everyone studying around you uh, is pursuing the same objective, and we had a similar vision of what the law can achieve in conflict settings. And that was uh, a, a very, very I'd say, important feeling for me that was different to Argentina because in Argentina, I would take courses on different legal subjects. But at the Geneva Academy, I think this is incredibly uh, valuable because you're uh, sharing the course with, sharing courses with 30, 35 people, sometimes even more. Uh, that are looking uh, at the law in the same way, are looking at the law as a protective tool. And then uh, what happened is I, I was uh, lucky enough to, to be selected um, as what is called at the ICRC, the International Committee of the Red Cross, to be a delegate. And uh, so 
of course, I'm, I'm, I'm a huge fan of, of the law, but uh, at the time I, I was lucky enough because it, I didn't have any, any experience um, working in conflict settings. I had this experience at the Ministry of Security in Argentina, but I was elected to be a delegate and then I, I had uh, the opportunity to fulfill different roles in different missions. So my first mission was in Colombia in a city called Bucaramanga. Um, then I, I spent there a bit more than a year, and then I went to Afghanistan, where I was based in, in Lashkarga in, in the Helmand province in the south. And then uh, I went to, to the DRC, to the Democratic Republic of Congo, where I was in, in Uvira, that is next to the border with Burundi. And these experiences, from a humanitarian perspective, of course, were very, very interesting because I was able to see how the law that I had studied from a theoretical perspective is applied by state actors, uh, armed state actors, and of course, uh, the relation between uh, the humanitarian sector and the local communities, but also how the the different armed actors would interact with these local communities. So it was, and the three contexts are very different because, of course, Colombia. Well, not only in terms of uh, it was a Spanish-speaking country, I'm a Spanish speaker, so uh, I'm from Latin America, so I could relate uh, relatively easy with, with the different uh, with, with the people there. Then in Afghanistan, working with a, an interpreter in a different language, uh, very different culture to the one in Colombia. And then the DRC, also a different place because some people would speak French, some people would speak uh, local languages such as Guinea Rwanda or, Guinea or Swahili. So it, 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 the three experiences were, were fantastic. Uh, and then I had the opportunity to move to Geneva and I worked specifically on, on our non-state actors and international law. And what does your work at Geneva Call involve? How, do you, um, how does the organization approach working with various armed groups? Um, so Geneva Call Perhaps a, perhaps a bit of, of the story of Geneva Call is um, Geneva Call was created as a result of the of, of the movement uh, that that was looking to ban anti-personal mines in the nineties, and uh, so that th- this movement I mean this led to the Ottawa Convention in nineteen ninety seven. But a group of people at the time said, you know, this is very interesting, but there is a situation of uh, landmines being used by armed state actors. And armed actors cannot become parties to the Ottawa Convention. So there should be a system that exists in parallel to, to this state-centric uh, lawmaking system in order to start involving uh, armed state actors in legal discussions. So Geneva Code was originally created to engage armed groups on issues related to the prohibition of using landmines. But what happened is that Geneva Code started engaging armed groups from different parts of the world. And I can speak later about how Geneva Call gets in touch with the groups and all the engagement processes. But the interesting aspect is that suddenly in a, in a, I would say, four or five years, Geneva Call was talking to 40, 50 groups about the prohibition of using landmines. And many of these groups were engaging positively on this. So destroying the, the stockpile of antipersonal mines or deciding not to use antipersonal mines. So some key actors after a couple of years said, you know, if you're already talking to these groups about the, the use of the prohibition of using antipersonal mines, why don't you also talk about the prohibition of using and recruiting children in hostilities? Or why don't you also start talking about uh, the prohibition of sexual violence or gender discrimination? You're already discussing with them about international law. 
So what 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 is preventing you from doing that? So we we since that NGO that originally engaged uh, armed groups on on uh, the prohibition of using landmines, then we are now dealing with child protection issues, the prohibition of sexual violence and gender discrimination, cultural heritage, protection of cultural heritage, uh, protection of healthcare, uh, prohibition of forced displacement, international humanitarian law in general. And this year, we, we've started our, officially our program on um, starvation, the prohibition of starvation and the protection of environment. And the interesting aspect about Geneva Code, there, for me, there, there are a couple of things. I mean, the first one is that the engagements that Geneva Call um, has with our groups, these thematic engagements, these thematic dialogues that it has with groups, are public. So you can, uh, Geneva Call has, has this engagement tool that we use. It's part of different activities that we have, but I think the branding tool of Geneva Call is what we call the deed of commitment. And the deed of commitment is a sort of unilateral declaration that our groups sign in Geneva together with Geneva Call and a representative of the canton of Geneva. It's a thematic declaration. So there is a representative of, of the armed non-state actor who comes to Geneva and in the Alabama room, where the first Geneva Convention was adopted in 1864, they sign together with someone from Geneva Call and someone from the canton of Geneva a declaration, for instance, not to use or recruit children in hostilities and to treat children who are in detention well and to ensure or to, to, you know, to try that these children who are living in the territories they control, that they access education and healthcare. And it's, it's, it's quite a fascinating process because this allows Geneva Code to monitor the respect of these obligations. So we have our headquarters in Geneva, but we have offices in different conflict settings. And my colleagues, uh, I have done it in the past, but my colleagues on a daily basis, uh, they monitor the respect of these commitments. So they go and check whether there are children at checkpoints. They go and check whether there are children at the military camps of the armed non-state actor. They talk to community leaders to see how is the situation of children. And there is one deed of commitment on children, but there is also a deed of commitment on sexual violence and gender discrimination, one on healthcare, one on the prohibition of landmines, and uh, we have just launched one on the prohibition of starvation. And again, the aspect here that is very important is that that commitment allows Geneva Code to monitor uh, the obligations, the respect of the obligations that are contained therein. And the other important aspect is that Geneva Code, the groups actually commit through this declaration uh, to allow Geneva Code to publicize situations of compliance and non-compliance. So if we go there and we engage with a group and the group, for instance, after the, being engaged with Geneva Code, they decide to release the children from the ranks, we can publicize this situation of respect. And on the other hand, if the armed group, uh, you know, we see that there are persistent violations after uh, the signing of the deed, we can also publicize this situation. So this is part of the, of the engagement process that we have with the groups. One, one last point that, of course, of course, Geneva Code is... Uh, is, it focuses exclusively on engaging our state actors. There are other humanitarian or international organizations that have recognized the importance of engaging with our state actors in the last few years, you know, and how this engagement can be uh, useful to achieve protected outcomes. So uh, this is a point that I want to say. It's not that we are just, you know, an, an isolated actor 
somewhere in the middle of nowhere, but it is being highly, you know, increasingly recognized at the UN um, and, and even by the UN Secretary General. So, yeah, just just to to put what we're doing in a bit of a framework. This is such fascinating work, uh, especially from an atrocities prevention perspective, because we study, you know, so many countries where non-state armed groups are are very relevant um, to the complex and um, don't have that level of engagement ourselves. And so it's always interesting to think about how you can get their behavior to change, how to um, communicate policy recommendations beyond just states. Uh, and so your work is, is very fascinating to us. Um, so what, what are some of the biggest challenges that you and Geneva Call face in engaging the armed groups, either you know prior to signing these documents or um, afterwards when they're failing to uphold the obligations? Thank you. Yes, this is, I mean, of course, working in, in conflict settings um, entails various challenges. Uh, I, I can name just just and engaging with armed groups, of course, armed non-state actors is also very problematic. I mean, in terms of, I mean, not problematic, but it's, it's challenging in different aspects. So the first one, I would say that is the access to these armed non-state actors. Uh, these armed non-state actors sometimes they are located in places where in remote places that is very difficult. To, to access to them and to suddenly sit down and having an IHL discussion or an international law discussion uh, with them. So this is obviously a problem. We also, I mean, as part of the humanitarian sector here, uh, there are also challenges with respect to the um, possible counterterrorism laws and how counterterrorism laws may prevent humanitarian engagement with certain armed actors in complex settings. So this is another challenge that as part of the humanitarian uh, community we, we face. Um, then, specifically, when I'm thinking about the engagements that we get from the armed groups, armed groups, they are very uh, dynamic entities. So the armed group is not, even if we say the armed group is a party to the conflict and has been a party to the conflict for many years, the armed group can change its behavior, its attitudes with respect to international law and its engagement with the humanitarian community during the conflict that group is part of. So, for instance, it can be, you know, it's like if I think about certain groups that, you know, we suddenly see and they can be engaged, but in six months it is foreseen that that group might split or might fracture into two uh, parts, you know, keeping those engagements is going to be is going to be challenging. If I think about, uh, of course, there are some groups that they don't want to be engaged. Uh, I would say that this has to be differentiated. There are some groups that they don't want to be engage on international law and some groups that they don't want to be engaged on certain specific issues. So it is not that armed groups are, every group, every armed group is negative about engaging with international law. And this is something that is, a, is, is something that we have to demystify because there is this perception that armed non-state actors, because often they are constituted in violation of, of the domestic law of the state, they don't want to be engaged on, on on international humanitarian law or sometimes on international human rights law. And this is not always the case. So there are armed groups that have engaged on international humanitarian law with humanitarian organizations, with states, signing agreements uh, with other groups. And this has happened in the past. So just, just to say that, again, a challenging aspect can be that certain groups are... Uh, 
they don't want to be they don't want to talk about specific goals or they don't agree with what international law says about specific goals. So just to give you an example, uh, I was in touch with with you know uh, some groups you know and and they would say you know they they wouldn't be against uh, the protection that civilians they have in, in under international humanitarian law, but they suddenly wouldn't be in agreement with the minimum age uh, for using and recruiting children in hostilities and. So just to, be, to, to give a bit of a background, the international humanitarian law says that it's 15, the Rome Statute says 15, you know, under 15 is a war crime, international human rights law says 18. And it's interesting because, you know, they say, yeah, I mean, we agree civilians shouldn't be attacked, but we don't agree with the 18 years old standard. This is a standard that Geneva Code uses because we believe that it has to be the most protective one. So it's not that they were against international humanitarian law in general, but, you know, the exercise was a thematic one. Then there are groups that are they don't want to be engaged on international law in general. And for those cases, we have to develop other strategies of engagement. So perhaps we develop a strategies in terms of engaging with societal actors um, or uh, relying on certain local values. This is something that we might do as well. So just a couple of the challenges that come to mind. It's interesting. Um, so are there... Are there particular moments that you can seize upon where it's easier to interact with the groups, like whether it be when they've signed recent agreements with their own government or or something else changing in the conflict? It's it's a it's a it's a very good question because as I as I mentioned before, armed groups are dynamic entities. And part of the exercise of humanitarian engagement is to identify when is that window of opportunity. And some groups, for instance, they might be willing to discuss about IHL in general at a certain moment in time, but not about, for instance, as I said before, child protection issues. And then you have the peace agreement and you have the FARC uh, committing not to use and recruit children in hostilities during, during the peace negotiations in La Habana. And, and this is, some, you know, or, or, you know, they had a, a rule saying that they wouldn't do that um, below the age of 15. But, you know, it's like during the peace negotiations, they suddenly started increasing the age, the minimum age, you know, until they said, like, they would release the children from the ranks. So that's part of the, the exercise that the humanitarian sector uh, does, that, or at least that Geneva Code does, in terms of identifying which thematic area we can engage on and, and which moment. But, of course, we, we sit down and we, we try to, um, to talk through and to see why they don't want to engage on a specific rule and to see... Uh, to look for alternatives and to see whether we can actually create that window of opportunity. Um, I think you, you hinted at this a little bit when you were talking about your previous experience in Colombia versus Afghanistan versus Congo, but um, with the work you do at Geneva Call, are the, the sort of challenges and even successes you have um, context-specific, or are there a lot of similarities between groups regardless of what conflict you're looking at? There are challenges that are specific to the conflicts and there are challenges that are can be observed from a more broader perspective. So um, I would say, for instance, uh, I mean, they're, they're, I'm thinking specifically, for instance, in terms of the interpretation of the law. I mean, in certain contexts, you can have groups that are, uh, they they actually they relate more to international law because of they could be 
they, they, they are looking for some sort of legitimacy at the international level, so they, re, they, they commit more to the international uh, legal system than groups that, for instance, might be more community embedded, that for them international law is not that relevant, but the relation with the local community or the local leader or the religious leader that is in the village is, is the, the, the driver uh, to, to influence or to change or to, uh, um, to have an impact on the behaviors of the armed actor. So uh, again, I think it's, it's, it's quite different from a, it's, it's, I would say that the analysis uh, has to be done in terms of what you know, the literature has discussed in terms of typologies and you know where cert a certain type of groups you know which groups form a certain types of groups and some people have said i don't know you have uh, groups that are uh, seeking for legitimacy you know it's like so these groups are going to be more um, i would say uh, closer to coming to international law than groups that are not seeking for legitimacy before the international community because you know they don't care about what the international community says um, but again i i I repeat this quite often, but I think it is true. I mean, armed groups, they change their behavior. So, you know, certain, you know, you may have at certain moment in time, you may have a commander or a deliberate decision of a group to be, to look for legitimacy at the international level, but then that might change if that commander dies, that commander is arrested, if there, there is a, a fracture, a fragmentation inside of the structure of the group, and then you have new commanders deciding differently. And then this is, again, we come back to the challenges before. You might negotiate access to a certain territory with one specific commander, and then three months afterwards, that commander is no longer there. So that, that can be a challenge. Um, but I would say, again, differentiating according to the types of groups and not so much according to the uh, region or the country where we, they, they work on. So, of course, it, it really depends on how the typology is formed. If, you know... As part of the typology, you have groups that are, I don't know, say what comes to my mind, groups that are more politically motivated, groups that have more religious motivations, groups that have uh, relations to the community, to the local communities, groups that don't have relations to the local community. So these factors of influence uh, are going to be of relevance. And given these challenges and um, I guess some of the progress that you have seen groups make uh, after signing agreements. Um, do you think that you have facilitated a decrease in violations of IHL and, and prevented atrocities through that process? I think I think we have. I think Geneva Gold has. Um, of course, it is always difficult to measure um, situations of respect. It is always, it seems to be always easier to measure situations of violations. But there have been situations of respect. So, uh, I mean, uh, for me, the, the big challenge first is that, you know, from an international legal perspective, we say that armed actor is a party to a conflict. And then we go back to the obligations, you know, IHL and possibly human rights law, depending on the actor. But so we say they are parties to the conflict, so they have international obligations. But on many occasions, they don't know what, what obligations are we talking about. No one actually has sat down with them and discussed what they have to respect according to these legal frameworks. So, you know, there is this assumption in international law that suddenly their parties are conflict and they have the knowledge and capacity to apply all these all these rules. And that's not always the case. So, you know, if you kind of like, let's, let's leave aside for a moment the situation of an armed 
conflict. But when you think in any about any given society, the circle of people who are who is aware of their international obligations is very small. You know, you think about the people who who, who actually know about the law in, in any given society, and, and it's not it's not a lot. And when you think about the people who know about international law, it's even smaller. And the people who know about international humanitarian law is even smaller. And the people who know the differences between human rights law, international humanitarian law, international criminal law, like the ICC statute, you know, it's even even smaller. And we think, I mean, again, this is a reflection about how international law deals with these actors. We think that because they are parties to a conflict, they exercise a certain degree of violence. They know their international obligations. That's not necessarily the case. So one step that, that we do at Geneva College is we actually sit down with them and discuss about their international obligations. And this is part of this engagement process I was telling before, is you know, you, you cannot use and recruit children below the age of 18, or you cannot um, you know, place your military barracks next to a healthcare facility because if the other side comes and attacks you, then it's, it's going to put in danger that military facility. I mean, you know, these things need to be part of the discussions with these armed actors because otherwise it's going to be very difficult that they comply with international law. And this is a very, I would say, pragmatic approach on, on what you do in this situation. And the other point that I... I I actually wanted to say is, of course, the first step is to discuss about their legal obligations. And once they discuss, we discuss a legal obligation, the other, I mean, there are other steps. So for instance, they need to internalize these obligations through the adoption of a code of conduct. They have to disseminate the content of this code of conduct by training to their members. Then they have to adapt, adopt a certain system of, uh, a certain mechanism that, um, you know, is, is triggered if there are violations of that code of conduct. And then, so, when you put this in place and when you discuss this, you, you see that the reasons why international law is violated uh, is not as straightforward as to say, you know, yes, the group is deliberately deciding not to do this or to do that. Or, so there are a lot of uh, intricacies, I would say, behind situations of respect and situations of violation. There are a lot of emotions, you know. What is like when you have a, a, a child who has been recruited when... when uh, he or she was was young, and you know, and that same person is recruiting again children. So it's like how individual emotions uh, play a role in that same violation occurring again. Um, and like that, I can give you different examples. But again, Geneva Code, we've been work, we've been working to to enhance the respect of international law by the armed act, armed state actors in conflict settings, and we have achieved some good results. Groups have released children from the ranks. They have, for instance, uh, moved their, their, their military barracks uh, far away from schools. They, have, uh, they were occupying schools, they, you know, and they, they realized that they couldn't do it, and they also uh, left the school unoccupied. Um, they destroyed their stockpile of antipersonal mines. They ad- adopted rules, internal rules, on, sexual, on the prohibition of sexual violence and gender discrimination. Uh, they received and they have given trainings internally on these issues. So, of course, I'm not saying this is, is, is these are, of course, um, steps among the, the, the many different engagements that we have. But some, yeah, some good practices and good examples are out there. The problem is, again, that, that we, we hear a lot more about violations than about uh, situations of respect. But we have seen that in certain situations, you know, decrease. In, in violations may happen 
uh, when, when certain issues are present. And having said that, when situations of violations increase or, or more situations of respect are present, then, you know, for instance, uh, perhaps a peace process or transitional justice processes can also be influenced positively. You know, so it's like if, again, if the, the Arnold State actor stops using antipersonal mines, then uh, the whole demining issue afterwards is, it might, might be easier. Uh, or, or the whole idea of uh, transitional justice and, and reconciliation for the communities when violations have decreased during the conflict. I really appreciate that um, your concept, your conception of situations of respect are harder to measure than than violations, uh, because we obviously deal with the same thing all the time with with R two P and um, and the idea of prevention and how do you measure an atrocity you've prevented versus you have obvious, very clear evidence when um, when you failed because atrocities are taking place. So it's a, a common struggle for both of us. Absolutely. I mean, when you uh, you know you you know when a, a civilian building is attacked, but is and and of course you can measure the you know the amount of attacks or, uh, that unfortunately happen in many of the conflicts. You know, the amount of hospitals that have been bombed, the amounts of, of schools that have been bombed. Sometimes the, amount, the, the, the number of civilians who have been uh, killed, but it's then when you when you move away from that and you say like, okay, how many attacks didn't happen because a commander said let's not do that because that's a violation of IHL. That's more difficult uh, to measure. Uh, but uh, for I mean, for us again, it's it's part of the engagement that we discussed with with the, the armed state actors in, in this respect and other. Key stakeholders such as you know again lo- members of the local community, religious leaders, um, the humanitarian sector in general, NGOs working in those conflicts that we're also working. Uh, so uh, we we of course we gather information of those violations, and it is also important because Geneva Code traditionally we have had a, a thematic engagement. So as I said before, we started with antipersonal minds, then we would deal with ch- child protection issues and, and all these thematic uh, areas, and. Uh, we wouldn't raise the issue of antipersonal minds if we did if, if the group that we are engaging is not using antipersonal minds and has never used antipersonal minds. But you know, so it's part of the, this thematic idea, this thematic engagement is also important for us. And and for that we do an analysis of the situations of violations and respect, of course, restraint by the groups. I want to ask a question um, that speaks to I think your your broader um, expertise on IHL beyond just Geneva calls, since you have um, such an immense background in this area. Uh, how do you think the scope of compliance with IHL has evolved in recent years? And what impact do you think this has had on civilians? Um, what do you mean by scope of IHL compliance? Is it, uh, yes. I guess, is it, is it trending upwards or downwards? And, you know, is it, I guess, um, even who is if if anyone is getting better at compliance um what do those actor look actors look like is it non-state actors is it states themselves it's it's very difficult to measure because as i said um you know in, in i would say in every situation of an armed conflict in every armed conflict i mean there are situations of respect and situation of violations and uh, i i doubt very much that there is any party to the conflict that has never committed an IHL violation um, having said that, again, there are situations of respect that do not receive much attention. And the question is how we measure those situations of respect. What are the elements that we use to measure those situations of respect? So 
it could be, for instance, the commander or the, the individual there saying, like, you know, let's not do that because international law, you know, says that we cannot do that. Um, but it could be because of they sign an agreement with a humanitarian actor committee not to do it. It could be adopting a, a, a rule saying that. So it's, it's very difficult. But the other point that I think is quite relevant in terms of IHL compliance is that in certain contexts, where IHL might not be relevant, you have local norms or local sources that may also influence the behavior of parties. Or as I said, emotions, you know? So it's like, it could be a positive emotion or a negative emotion. But so again, from a legal perspective, there's a lot of attention on how IHL relates to the party to the conflict, you know? And certain groups, you know, they might decide not to do something, not because international law says that they cannot do it, but because there is a local custom saying like they cannot do it. And that the, the power of that local custom is much stronger than the international law. So this is something that, of course, again, uh, the humanitarian sector uh, is working on, but it needs more attention as well on, on, the, on the synergies, on the confluences, the convergences between uh, these local norms and, and international law. Again, it's something that has gained some attention in the last few years. So, again, I would say it's, it's this... Um, this, I, I'm not sure I can make a statement about whether IHL is more respected now than before, especially because, again, we turn on the TV and we see violations happening all the time, uh, which it's, it's of course, the violations do happen. Uh, I, I don't want to be uh, misinterpreted. But, again, in, in, in many of these situations of armed conflict, there are situations of respect as well. And, and if there are situations of respect, again, there might be situations of violations in the future. If there are situations of violations now, there might be situations of respect in the future. Conflicts are much more complicated than the, the information that we, we, we get. And, and you know this better, you know this as, as I do, because you, you also work in, in, in certain conflict-related areas. So, I, I, again, it's, 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 a, it's a complex picture, um, but... Uh, for us, the examples that at Geneva Code we have is engaging directly with the armed road state actor can lead to uh, positive steps and can lead to situations of respect of the law. Uh, so again, we have had some some examples in this regard, and uh, which shows that you know we have to continue doing that. It's it's a, it's a step to decreasing the the violations of of uh, international humanitarian law and the affectation of the civilian population. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Expert Voices on Atrocity Prevention. If you'd like more information about the Global Center's work on R2P, mass atrocity prevention, or populations at risk of mass atrocities, visit our website at globalr2p.org and connect with us on Twitter and Facebook at GCR2P.